Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. 2020 was, to put it lightly, an insane year. Mother Nature didn't care about a global pandemic either as she lashed out in every single season. From deadly tornadoes in the spring to raging wildfires in summer to a record number of tropical cyclones and finally ending the year with a bonafide nor'easter. Well, I've got some with me today that will be able to talk about these events. It's the Weather Channel's Mike Bettis. We're going to go down the list to discuss the weather events that shape our 2020. Mike, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hey, Marshall, how you doing? Uh, well, I'm excited because as I was saying before we got on, Mike Bettis, for those that are listening, is someone that we've wanted to have on the Weather Geeks podcast forever, <laughs> and we finally got him. So let's take advantage of this moment, and what better a person to talk to as we kind of do a recap and geek out on the year's weather? Because Mike, you know, you all know him from the Weather Channel. He He's one of the signature um, meteorologists on the network. So Mike... Before we get into the geek out, though, I mean, since you are a guest on the show, this is a, a question I ask every single guest. How did you get into weather? What made you the weather? Um, you know, I really always had a fascination with weather. I grew up in Ohio, and we had all four seasons, which was which was really great. So you could experience, you know, winter weather, severe weather, summer weather, fall weather. It was just really a, a good time, you know. And um, when I when I was deciding to go to college, you know, all my, all my buddies wanted to be engineers. Um, and I was like, you know what, I, I want to do something different, you know, and I love math. I love science. Um, but I didn't want to be an engineer necessarily. So I thought, well, you know what, meteorology, I think would be really, really cool. Um, and so I decided in high school, I wanted to be a meteorologist, but I really thought I would work for the weather service or I would be um, a meteorologist for NASA. Um, and, then I, and then I realized after I got turned down for numerous internships, I really was not a rocket scientist. <laughs> and so um, it ended up being, you know, my kind of my, my last resort was I did an internship at a local TV station. Uh, and I really liked it. It was really, I had a really fun job. And I thought, you know what, this, I might be able to do this. And, you know, one thing led to another and, and, um, I got some good mentorship and, um, you know, eventually it just worked out for me. I got a weekend job working in Dayton, Ohio is my first, my first ever on air TV job. And then it just kind of progressed from there. And, and here I am 25 years later. <laughs> my, where'd you go to school? Where'd you get your, uh, I, I got a, my degree from Ohio state. Okay, you're an Ohio State Buckeye there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got it. So it's really amazing uh, to see your career. But again, one more question, because I, I could do a whole other show. I, mean, I know my producers are like, get to it, Marshall. But I mean, just people know you, they see you on the Weather Channel. I mean, how many miles have you logged or how, how much? I mean, I, I heard some crazy statistic about just your, your sort of the places that you've gone and how, how, how much you've kind of put into covering the weather. Are there any crazy statistics about your, your uh, experience on the Weather Channel that you want to share with us? Well, you know, I don't, uh, I know that Mike Seidel keeps, he keeps like a daily log of everything he generally does. He's been out there forever, but um you know, probably for me, you know, one of the 
one of the neatest assignments that I ever got was, was tagging along with the Vortex 2 project in 2009 and 2010. And we did thousands of miles, you know, across the plains every day, you know, trying to find tornadoes. Um, we were out there at first year, we were out there for, I think, six straight weeks. That's what I heard. Yeah. And, and I know Mike, Mike Seidel also has some really crazy numbers as well, but I, I had heard something about you being out there six weeks or so in this. I wanted to, yeah. I, I better get to this before Sarah Dillingham and Heather Sons get on me because Mike, I mean, you know, many of you know him from shows I mean, such as Abrams and Bettis, uh, Weather Underground and so forth. Uh, so you all, probably more so than I do, track weather on a day-to-day basis. And so I have a list of things that happened in 2020 beyond the pandemic, but I just want to walk through and get your response, anything that triggers you as as I walk through them. And the first one actually is actually something I, I don't know that I was familiar with. I somehow missed this, which was the the Kobe. Well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't miss it, but there, there, there was really uh, something about the weather that people may have missed. And that is the Kobe Bryant helicopter crash. Now, I didn't, I certainly didn't miss that because I was watching TV live when it happened and started hearing the rumors. But what people initially missed, and even I missed, is that there was a fog poor visibility component to that particular event. Uh, the crash was ruled an accident, but the final report still has not been issued to this day. Um, do you remember this event and when, when that crash happened and what yeah. were your initial thoughts? Yeah, I remember like it was yesterday because it, it, you know, the news was so shocking um, for sure. And then the first thing, um, you know, the very first thing I thought of when, when I heard this was what was the weather? Um, because we know in Southern California, you can get the, the marine layer where you get, you know, this the low clouds or the fog that rolls in. Um, and I, I think when you um, kind of look at the, the forensics of it, some things that we now know about the communications with the pilot and the air traffic control and the towers um, that, you know, as they were flying, um, from Orange County, and they were going then, um, I believe they were going up toward Thousand Oaks, they were going north of LA, that you know, they follow generally um, the visual flight rules where they're flying basically above highways, and that's their, that's their delineation, that's the marker, right? And then at one point, you come through some of these um, canyons, and you get into this low cloud bank, or you get into this fog, and the first thing I thought, because we had done some things on this before was, oh my gosh, like the first thing that came to mind was the pilot got confused because there's this phenomenon known as when you, when you don't have visibility anymore, there's this phenomenon known as spatial disorientation where a pilot becomes so confused. Um, they don't know where the horizon is. They don't, they can't tell left from right up from down. Um, and this has happened, you know, in, in numerous crashes before. And it was the first thing that came to my mind. And we've had some people on some experts on to talk about this, that it, it may have been a factor. Certainly, you know, if the skies were clear, everything would have been fine. But, um, you know, knowing some of the details that we know about the rate of speed, the erratic up and down movement, um, you have to wonder how much a factor that fog was in the crash. And, you know, I even, I remember as a, as a kid or maybe a teen, preteen or teen, I used to play this game called uh, Flight Simulator on the computer. And I remember even on that computer, the sort of being disoriented when you kind of in, were flying in clouds and so forth. So just even from that simulator perspective, I, I could certainly understand that. And so, uh, you know, we certainly, all of us, particularly those of us that are sports fans, uh, 
you know, we want to send our thoughts out to the family of Kobe Bryant and everyone else that was on the helicopter that day. I mean, a young daughter, I have a young daughter myself. Moving into March, we had a tornado. We had the Nashville-Cookville tornado in March 2nd and 3rd. EF3 in Nashville, EF4 in Cookville, killed uh, five people in Nashville, 19. Uh, it was the worst tornado since the April 2011 outbreak, um, and they were moving. They were moving a good clip, 65 miles per hour. There were a total of 10 tornadoes confirmed that day. Uh, March, early March. I mean, that's that's really getting into severe weather season. It's, it's early, but you know, what are your thoughts on that particular event? Yeah, I mean, it um, it, it wasn't the day, the time of the year wasn't surprising to me. I think um, Tennessee gets a lot of tornadoes in March and April. Um, I think the thing that was, you know, and we know it can happen. I mean, the, the, the odds are low, but we know that big cities can be hit by tornadoes. But I think this one coming right dead center through the middle of Nashville, um, you know, was was disturbing when you see. And there's, of course, there's all kinds of video of it from a, a guy that was still up in a crane at the time of it to surveillance cameras, home doorbell cameras, these kind of things. And happening at night, you know, becomes so dangerous. Um, but, you know, when this, when the, the long track one, 60 miles long, um, and going through Nashville, you know, when something's on the ground for that long, going through a, you know, a major metropolitan area, you know it's gonna do some damage. And we know, you know the price tag is huge. Um, two dozen people lost their lives in that, not to mention it wasn't just one. You know, there were multiple tornadoes along that track, one of them being an EF4. Um, and so if you're not prepared for that, and it's the middle of the night and you're sleeping, and you don't know it's coming. I mean, it's it's a very dire situation. I think too many people, unfortunately, got themselves caught in that. But but you understand. I mean, you get it. You know, not everyone is. Listen, we're meteorologists. We're in tune with it as, as much as anybody. But you just so hope that you know situations like this help people understand that danger that can be there literally twenty four seven. And so you need to know that tornadoes can happen once you go to bed, and uh, you, you need to always have a plan. And I, I appreciate you saying that because it's something I harp on quite a bit as well. You know, I do get a little frustrated at time when I see that it came without warning headlines sometimes after these events, but we're attuned to these things. People aren't sometimes. So as you noted, the best thing to do, if you know that there is even the threat of a tornado, tornado or severe weather as you go to bed, is just have a plan, perhaps have your weather radios or other alert systems on your phone there. Uh, just in preparation, if nothing happens, great. I think that's the key lesson that came. And also, thank you for dispelling this myth that tornadoes don't hit urban areas, particularly central business districts. We in Atlanta know that that's not the case from uh, the storm that we had in 2008 uh, came through, I believe it was an EF2. Now, I guess a month later, we had the Easter weekend severe outbreak, April 12th and 13th, 140 Tornadoes touched down 10 states from Texas to Maryland. The strongest tornado was a high-end EF4 in Bassville, Mississippi. Uh, 32 tornado-related fatalities, making it the deadliest tornado outbreak since April 2014. Um, what is your thought as an expert in this field, Mike, in general on what outbreaks are? Do you, I mean, I see these debates from time to time on what a tornado outbreak is, what isn't it. Um, do you get caught up in that or do you, are you more concerned about this notion that you have a multi-tornado threat when you see an event like this? Uh, I will admit that sometimes I do get caught up in it. And I always have thought to myself, like, <clears throat> excuse me, what, what, should there be a threshold? Like, should we be able to put a number on what, is there some criteria? Like, does it have to be like, you know, two dozen tornadoes. Does it have to be 
you know, what's the, what's the threshold to call it an outbreak? And I, I get caught up in that sometimes, the semantics of it. Um, I think, listen, we say this all the time, weather's local. Um, so if it's one or two tornadoes, but it hits your neighborhood, it's probably an outbreak to you, right? Um, to the meteorological world, you know, it's a little bit different. But this truly was an outbreak. And we look at the sheer number of tornadoes here, 140 tornadoes. We hadn't seen anything like that in nearly a decade, right? Um, and so I think also you, you look at the areas that it hit, uh, you know, from Texas all the way to Maryland here. And, and that southeast, that Dixie Alley, is, as we call it, really is the most vulnerable part of our country. We get so many tornadoes there that it's really, in, in my mind now, um, it's really Tornado Alley. Uh, I know that we talk a lot about the typical planes, but in, and that's truly where you get the nice picturesque, you know, TV friendly um, tornadoes. But there's such a risk in the Southeast because of such a vulnerable population because of um, an older population, minority population, which we know are both at risk in, in severe weather, at, more, at greater risk in severe weather, not to mention the housing situation that we have in the Southeast because there is a high, high a percentage of uh, mobile homes across the Southeast because it's affordable housing. And so you, those are people that are at risk, even in, in intense thunderstorms. That doesn't have to necessarily be a, a tornado. And so I think when you see outbreaks like this occur and it happens, you know, it's happening now with more frequency and, or, and maybe even more intensity that, you know, we've got to do more to protect people. Informing people is, is our business. Um, but, you know, having i think a lot of people they can be armed with the knowledge but they may not know what to do with it at that point so what's the action you know to get these people to safety um you know 32 people dying is way too many people dying i think we should in this country have an ability to protect these people and and i would add to the vulnerability in the south which is where we both live these storms tend to at times be nocturnal and they tend to form mm -hmm. along qlcs is these quasi-linear convective systems which are tough to predict uh, as well. So interesting. And, and shout out to Dr. Victor Gensini up at Northern Illinois University because they published some work in the science literature showing, as you noted, there seems to be a gradual shift in the tornado alley as our sort of hot spot. Now, that event had 600 reports of damaging thunderstorm winds in just 24 hours, mostly in the Ohio Valley, and this is most since the mid Atlantic derecho of June 2012. But in August 10, August 10th of this year, we had another derecho event itself. And this one really blew my mind because I saw some of the satellite images of the cornfields out there uh, in parts of the, uh, the Iowa and so forth. Unbelievable. I mean, I've seen estimates of $7.5 billion, uh, costliest derecho on record. First of all, tell, tell us the folks that may be listening to the weather geese. Most of us are that are listening know what they are, but perhaps someone doesn't. Tell us what a derecho is, and then what do you remember about that particular event? Yeah, it's a specific, you know, there, there's a specific set of criteria that you have to meet here where you have to have uh, frequent thunderstorm gusts not separated by a certain time period it has to last a certain distance. I think that's that's gone to like 240, 250 miles, something something along those lines. Um, don't quote me on that number exactly, but because that, that number changes. It, does, it changes. So, yeah, this general is fine. Absolutely. Um, but basically, it's um, it's a almost continuous unbroken line of thunderstorm damage that occurs over a wide swath of, of uh, real estate. That's basically all you, have, you really need to know here. Um, and, and we get a handful of these a year, um, some of varying intensities. But when you talk about this one, particularly in Iowa, where the winds were estimated to be upwards of 140 miles an hour from thunderstorms, um, you know, if really something intense happened here um, and 
and I mean, this is, this is, you know, straight line winds that are tornadic in essence. Right. Um, and so you're blowing down power lines, you're, you're blowing over homes, you're knocking down crops. I mean, the, the sheer amount of damage that they're still recovering from and the amount of power outages and power outages lasted for months because there was so much infrastructure damage um, that it took them a very long time. It wasn't just like you could just go snap up a new power line. You know, a lot of times you have a thunderstorm and what will happen is, um, and I, I don't want to get into kind of the details of this, but a lot of times like something like a tree branch will come down and it'll arc a power line and it's very easy for the crews to come along and they really just take a pole and they readjust the cutout and your power's back on. But if your whole power grid comes down, the power poles are all down and the wires are laying in the streets, I mean, and your substations are destroyed. I mean, you really have some intense work to do. Um, not to mention it's August in Iowa, it's hot. Um, you know, people are going without power and no air conditioning, no running refrigerators, these kind of things. And so it truly becomes a humanitarian crisis on a small scale, you know, in the big scheme of things, but still, um, when you have places like Cedar Rapids or a Waterloo, places like this, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very big deal. This was a derecho for the record books. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with the Weather Channel's Mike Bettis about a recap of the 2020 year from a weather perspective. I know that you remember 2020 for many things many things uh, of crisis and challenge. And the weather, unfortunately, was one of them. And we just talked about, I want before I leave the derecho, one quick sort of follow-up question I have for you. I often get this sense sometimes, and I see this even just around here locally and other places, Oftentimes, people sort of sleep on or downplay straight line wind damage. Uh, you'll, you'll have, you know, have wind gust or wind damage. And people are like, oh, it had to be a tornado. It had to be a tornado come through. But as we know from these derechos and other events, straight line winds can also be a significant hazard. And so we warn for them uh, with severe weather warnings. But uh, just, just, just an opinion as an expert here. Can we do anything better to elevate the threat of wind damage, or is it is it is it what it is, so to speak? I think we have to. Um, we've had this discussion um, frequently uh, on air on the Weather Channel about so many people in the last couple of years are dying from downed trees. 
um, right? Um, and you look at the derecho happen in the middle of summer where these trees all have their leaves on them and so they catch a lot more wind than they may otherwise. And so they're much more susceptible to topping over. And I think homes on trees, homes on cars, homes in yards threatening you, I think is a huge um, risk um, that, that we don't pay enough attention to. And I think I've noticed even in the last year or two for myself personally, something that I wouldn't say on television before I do now, I say, you know, these winds could be so intense. If you have a, a wooded lot, if you live around tall trees, you may want to spend the night tonight in your basement, you know, um, and, or, or spend the, don't, don't sleep on an upstairs bedroom floor, sleep on the first floor. Um, that may actually save your life. And, and even if it's not a tornado warning, it's a thunderstorm warning, and you're worried about the trees in your property, it's the wise thing to do. My family and I do that now. Um, we have large trees around our home. Um, and the last thing I want is for all of us sleeping upstairs to be threatened by a tree. And so I think that to me is one thing about thunderstorm winds um, that, that all of us need to do a better job with and we've been talking like dr rick nab about this talking about you know do we need to do more with some sort of extreme wind warning um and, and what what the wording needs to be to let people know that a tree could fall on your home and potentially hurt you or kill you um and i think we don't do it i wouldn't say we don't do enough um we don't do a good enough job scaring people we need to do a good enough job describing to people what the risk is going to be if you just say hey there is a risk of down trees and and you're like okay well big deal. But when you say, hey, it could fall on your home, on your vehicle, do not drive, do not be on an upstairs floor, then I think there's specificity there that gives them instruction on, on what to look out for and what to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because we have tall pines behind our house here where we live and I absolutely do the same thing. If I know there's a really high wind event, I will sometimes have the kids. I'm, our, my wife and I, are, our master's on the on the main level, but the kids' bedrooms are upstairs. And I have actually done that on a couple of occasions as well. And it really impacts this notion of, I guess, what we're really describing is impact-based forecasting and warning, which I know the Weather Service itself is moving toward. But I, I completely agree with your statement. Uh, I think this is an area where we really need to think carefully and perhaps even with our social sciences colleagues. I want to move on. The California, Oregon, and Colorado wildfires this year. That that was uh, news on many fronts. Uh, for 2020, let me read some st uh, statistics uh, prepared by our producers. Both California and Colorado set new records for the their large number of wildfires. California excuse me, has seen nearly 4.2 million acres consumed, which is a state record. Oregon and Washington have also seen uh, significant numbers. Nationally, we've seen more than 9.5 million acres burned so far this year, and there have also been 45 or so deaths. Um, what's your perspective on the wildfires, uh, natural cycles? Some people say that this is sort of the fingerprint of climate change in there with these wildfires. Um, give me your perspective on your coverage of the wildfires and your, your own sort of scientific understanding of what's going on. Um, I could talk about this forever. This is such a dire situation for our Western states. Um, and I think that, you know, you, you have to look at, um, you know, you, you certainly have to look at what role climate is playing here. Over the long term, we see the trends, right? And, um, you know, we're becoming a very arid, it's, it's become a very arid climate in some very susceptible areas. There's the, and so you, you open yourself up to certain things, whereas trees become, um, you know, dry or disease, they become much more susceptible to the pine bark beetle. Um, and this has been a huge problem in Colorado in particular. And when that beetle then starts to prey on a weak 
tree, um, then that tree, you know, is eaten by the beetle and the tree dies. Well, then it's dry and it's instantaneous fuel. And this is happening in millions and millions of acres across the West, unfortunately. Um, and that has some of its roots in, in climate and, and how that has allowed for these infestations to occur. But the other thing is, you know, there is some um, you know, there is a natural cycle here of wildfires and what their purpose is, they serve a purpose. Um, and because we have so many people that now live in this urban wildland interface, we're not allowing these fires to burn as they once would have. Um, and so we're putting these fires out as much as we can. And that is actually, I know it sounds strange, but it's actually causing us to to have more fires um, and fires well, that are more dangerous. Things, yes, yes. Um, it's, it's, yeah, and so, you know, if we were to allow more natural occurrence of fires, um, then you you have this natural regrowth, you have a natural, um, believe it or not, some of these plants and trees can, can build a natural resistance to fires. Um, and so these are all things that have to play out, but, but you see the numbers, California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Montana, uh, this year all saw a tremendous number of fires and, and a lot of it driven by um, drought that was very persistent. Again, um, a huge lack of rain in Northern California was a very big issue. Uh, and then you look at the larger, larger scale patterns of La Nina, which doesn't typically bring us um, huge amounts of rain for California in particular. That's a concern that, that this could continue, you know, into next year, but the wildfire season and Cal Fire will tell you this, that we've talked to them many times, is that uh, fire season is basically year-round anymore. It's not just the, the summer and fall, it's year-round. Yeah, and one of the things that also sort of struck me, and I guess I don't mean that pun, but was the number of sort of lightning strikes out there. I mean, we you know we know that many of these wildfires are called, caused by lightning, you have these dry thunderstorms, but with the advent and emergence of the GOES, new GOES satellite with the geostationary lightning mapper on board, we can really quantify and see those lightning strikes. And the other thing that really stood out to me beyond what you said, I actually think there was a, a, a tornado warned from a pyrocumulonimbus in one of the one of the storms or one of the fires out there this year too. I mean, did you all cover that? Oh yeah. I mean, listen, more intense these things are, the more ability they have to produce these, these massive fire whirls. Um, and we've seen this a couple of different times. I mean, some of the most stunning things I have ever seen on television are these incredible fire whirls, some of them with the intensity of an EF3 tornado. Could you imagine a tornado itself is scary enough, but now do you catch that tornado on fire? Um, and you're just like, it's, it's, it's hell on earth for these people. Um, and you just, I, I think... For a lot of times, unfortunately for Americans, what it comes down to is dollars and cents. And I think that we have to look at the finances of wildfires anymore and what they're costing us. It is, it is so damaging um, to our um, economy in some of these states that it has to be addressed. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're losing lives, we're losing property, um, but it's... Um, it's a money, I know it's a kind of a, a rudimentary way to say it, but it's a money pit. These natural disasters that we're, we're incurring every single year are a money pit that this country can't afford anymore. And so we have to take legitimate action to, to mitigate these disasters as much as we can. And, and, and one final thought as we move on, these fires also create an air quality hazard too from a public health standpoint and also from aviation hazard too because these smoke plumes travel literally across the country and perhaps even across the globe. So uh, that's another sort of aspect of these wildfires that we're seeing. Now, obviously one of the biggest weather stories, Mike, of 2020 was hurricane season. 
30 named storm. We normally have 12 or so named storm. We had 30. Only the second time in history we got to the Greek alphabet. And frankly, we got so far into the Greek alphabet, it could have been a normal season in itself. Now, we got that far into it. I think we had the strongest hurricane of the year in November, if I recall, uh, or, may, or close to the strongest. I don't even know where to start this discussion <laughs> because there's so much that I could say about it. We had Bertha in 27, May 27, 28, which made landfall uh, in South yeah. Carolina. We had the earliest third name storm on record, the earliest six name. I mean, I mean, I can just start naming off yeah. early this and breaking record that. Give me your initial impressions on the 2020 hurricane season, Atlantic season. Oh, it was fast and furious. I mean, the number of storms was just um, off the charts. You know, it took it took me back to like 2004, took me back to 2005, um, when you just could not catch a breath, right? Um, in, in some regards, though, um, I, I almost feel like we caught a break, though. There were so many hurricanes, but and I know we had a ton of landfalls, but I think in, in some regards, can, can kind of knock on wood here for the future is that most of them were a little, were, were, were weaker. Um, you know, we didn't have what we had in 2005 or it was major hurricane after major hurricane making landfall, right? We had Laura, which I think was a, which a huge issue for us in Louisiana, not to mention the numerous landfalls we had in Louisiana. Um, but, you know, I think about where these hit. Um, in Louisiana, we were very lucky to escape in New Orleans without any major effects. Where these were hitting a national wildlife refuge um, in relatively low population areas. Um, and so in that regard, I think we were lucky. The, the unfortunate thing was, you know, what these things were doing as far as the flooding goes, the storm surge, the, the erosion of the coastlines, the massive power outages. I, I certainly think about Isaias, um, where that one really tracked all the way up the East Coast and knocked out power to millions of people. And I think for me, that's one thing that I'm becoming more and more aware of is how life-threatening power outages are in hurricanes. We talk a lot about the storm surge. We talk a lot about the wind, the flooding, but more and more, because we're such an, uh, an electricity-driven society, um, losing power is a, um, it can be a life or death situation for some people. And so I think that's another, and we've talked about this already, you know, it's one more thing that we have to do to improve our infrastructure in this country is really address the issues that we have with electricity because we're so susceptible to natural disasters. And one, one final thing before we go to the break, we did a study on Superstorm or Hurricane Sandy here at the University of Georgia. And to your point, those power outages can also lead to secondary losses of life because you often see um, carbon monoxide poisoning as people are trying to use generators because of that power. But I want to take a break and then come back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we're recapping the year 2020 from a weather perspective with the Weather Channel's Mike Bettis. You see him on Weather Underground and many other things in the Weather Channel's uh, portfolio of shows. He's, he's one of the staples of, of the Weather Channel. I'm, I'm pleased to have this colleague join us today. You mentioned Laura. Let me just give some of the stats on Laura since she specifically mentioned that. It was the earliest 12th named storm, first major hurricane of 2020, uh, rapidly intensified by 65 miles per hour in 24 hours. It went from 75 to 140 miles per hour, fastest in the Atlantic since Maria. Uh, first hurricane landfall in Louisiana since Isaac in 2012, and it got to 150 miles per hour. There were, there were just so many different things about this. This was the storm, Laura, where the Hurricane Center issued the unsurvivable storm surge warning. <laughs> get your thoughts on that kind of language and messaging. Yeah, what, what I think it's important. Yeah, I think it's important. I think that you, you have to um, let people know what's coming their way. If you live... Um, you know, in a very vulnerable coastline like Louisiana, where there's not a lot of elevation, um, storm surge can go miles inland, you're at risk. Uh, and so uh, if you choose to stay, um, your life is in peril. There's no question about that. And I think that one thing that the Gulf of Mexico taught us this year is that don't underestimate it. It seems that every single, Laura was, was a prime example. It seemed that every hurricane, though, was an overachiever as far as intensity. It's still the one thing that uh, you really struggle with when it comes to forecasting. Hurricanes got so good at forecasting the track, but intensity is still uh, a thorn in our side. And it seemed like every single hurricane this year was overachieving its intensity forecast. Laura did it by a country mile. I mean, this thing, um, you know, I think initially was forecast like a high-end Cat 1. And then I remember talking with Alex Wilson on air, and we were, and we were both saying, man, um, everything seems to be right for this thing to go to go berserk, uh, and it did. Um, but it, but Laura wasn't alone. And then, unfortunately, a lot of these hurricanes were, were rapidly intensifying near shore, and that's what Laura did as well, was it was intensifying right up to landfall. And that's a real danger for so many people um, when you have an intensifying hurricane at landfall where you may go to bed um, one night and it's cat one, you wake up, it's cat four, you know, oh, the game has changed now. And so you always have to be ready to respond to those circumstances. Yeah, and the, the other meteorological buzz that I remember surrounding Laura is that at one point we thought Laura and Marco were going to be in the Gulf of Mexico at the same time and and do the little Fujiwara effect that we talk about where these hurricanes, because of their dynamical processes and vortical effects, do this little dance around each other. That ultimately did not end up happening. Another storm that I want to call out was in September. Uh, uh, you know, Sally. Mm -hmm. And Sally was really interesting because it demonstrated a different forecast and messaging challenge. It moved so slowly that we could see that this was going to be a rain threat. Uh, it's already been designated as a billion dollar disaster, as have uh, Laura and many others, perhaps. But uh, what have we learned or what do we still need to learn about conveying the rainfall threat in these slow moving storms? And by the way, yeah. there's some scientific evidence that because of climate uh, sh uh, changes that some of these storms are starting to slow down with more frequency as we saw with, say, Harvey or Florence. 
Yeah, I think the threat is for a lot of people that live, you know, we, we focus so much on the coastline, the threat can be so damaging inland. And so you may think, okay, I, uh, I'm not in the surge zone. Um, I'm not likely to get the intense winds that they might get at the coastline. I live in wherever it may be, northern Alabama or north Georgia. I live in the mountains of western North Carolina, um, wherever it may be. Um, you get these heavy rain-producing thunderstorms that, that accompany these, or even just a big rain shield uh, that, that comes in with this, and it doesn't move very quickly. The inland flooding has become such an issue um, with hurricanes. You know, the prime example would be Hurricane Harvey, of course, but, you know, we had intense flooding with, um, with Matthew, and, I mean, the list could go on and on, you know, with some of these hurricanes. But um, because so many people live... Um, in vulnerable areas, and you listen to Southeast, even if you don't think you go, whatever, I live in Atlanta, um, I'm not at risk. Um, but when Hurricane, I think it was Zeta came through, it dumped like six inches of rain in my house and I'm out there, like literally, I felt, I'm not, I'm not kidding you, Marsh, when I tell you this. I came home from work uh, and it was dark, it was like nine o'clock at night um, and my driveway is filling up with water. I got a big drain at the end of my driveway, but it had some leaves and debris and stuff in it. I truly felt like, um, you know, it was like um, Shawshank Redemption. Remember, he's standing in the rain and it's pouring on him and it's flooding around him. I truly felt like that's what I was doing. I had like all my dress clothes on and I'm knee deep in water and I'm trying to pull debris and leaves out of my drains so my house doesn't flood um, and there's lightning. I'm like, well, what am I doing? Um, but the, the, and I kind of, you know, I'm a kind of kid here and everything worked out, but there are places where, you know, people are so vulnerable inland to the flooding threat that, that I think it's, um, it's tough question. It's a tough, it's a tough um, disaster to tackle because you never know exactly when, and it can be such widespread that it affects so many people. It's hard to, to control that disaster. Yeah, that's crazy. And then we got into the Greek alphabet, you know, people were asking, well, what happens if we have to retire uh, a, a Greek letter named Storm. And I think we we learned over the course of that question that uh, the name, the, the Greek letter with the year would be retired. So perhaps we will see an ADA 2020 <laughs> retired. And so it stimulated this question about whether we really yeah. need to think about how we're naming these things once we get beyond the list. Um, for example, Hurricane Delta, the first um, I guess it was the first uh, Greek letter alphabet storm to make landfall in the U.S. And then we had Zeta and then Ada, uh, October 31st and November 13th, Ada uh, rapidly intensified uh, 85 miles per hour in 36 hours, uh, made several landfalls. It's just just crazy as we sort of think about this. Yeah. Any, any final thoughts on the hurricane season as we move on? Uh, yeah, as far as naming goes, I, I, I certainly... Um... I certainly have an opinion on that. I'm, no, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. What is <laughs> I think the Greek the Greek names have got to go. I think this is um, I think this is going to come back to bite us at some point. It may do it this year. Um, and what happens when you have a Greek name storm that really hits uh, a large populated area and does major destruction, and then you don't retire that name truly and you use it again? Um, people are going to be traumatized by that, um, and it's just. Um, uh, it's just not a wise thing to do, I don't think. So I, I would like to see a sub list of names um, that could, and not Greek names. Uh, I would just like to see a secondary list of names that we can go to. I'd also like to see us, you know, add, you know, the other letters that we don't use. You know, we don't use all 
26 right. letters of the alphabet. Yeah, well, Q's. Oh. And by the way, yeah, but even in some other basins, they have sub lists as you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the, I guess, the Central West Pack with Pacific, they they do do this. So it's, a, I, I think, I think there's momentum building around this discussion. I've heard you say it. Um, shout out to Nate Johnson uh, of uh, NBC and also Weatherbrains. I heard him talking about it. So perhaps there's movement towards this, but it, yeah. it'd have to happen, I guess, at the World Meteorological Organization, WMO, and Hurricane Center level. I would imagine. I think they have to have this discussion. I think um, it's been brought to the forefront this year. And if, it, if it's not addressed, I think it just becomes a bigger issue down the road. What happens if you have two of the same name storms? That, what if you have to retire beta 2005 and beta you know, 2023? You know what I mean? And then you, you all these, you know, kind of just in name only retired things and you keep using the same name that you shouldn't be using again. So I think it has to change how quickly they can get that done. I don't know because it takes the will of a lot of different countries uh, in the Atlantic Basin to, to get on board here. But I think it's something that the Hurricane Center director should spearhead and make it a priority. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. I'll, I'll go on record as saying I completely agree with this movement. I even wrote about it in Forbes over the summer as well. I want to transition to the last part of the discussion. We're now into, we're, we're technically not winter yet, although it's meteorological winter, but we've had a couple of winter storms. We've had winter storm Billy, October 26th and 27th, brought uh, heavy snows to the Rockies, high ice accumulations in Oklahoma with over 300,000 out of power, as you mentioned as well. Uh, described by local affiliates as tree carnage. Uh, some locations had up to two inches of ice. Uh, Billy also interacted with Hurricane Zeta and the upper level low played a role in where Zeta eventually made landfall with some of these compound weather events that we're starting to hear more about in the academic circles. And then now, I guess we're dealing with winter storm Gale. Um, which was an interesting one because if you looked as we're recording this is th during that week, there was all this big discussion about the big snowstorm on the I-95 corridor in the big cities, you know, D.C., Boston, Philly. But I guess the storm took more of a northwesterly shift, which brought the much of the snow inland. So it's really a classic example of sort of watching the model evolve in terms of these snowstorms, essentially. Um, what are your big sort of takeaways as we start to see these winter storms and the challenges and messaging them, Mike? Well, um, you know, we're um, such a mobile society that, you know, when we have something like a snowstorm that slows us down, it crimps our style, it really does. Um, but, you know, especially these big East Coast storms, because they affect such large population centers, um, they become, you know, national news stories. And I think the, um, the interesting thing I always find about uh, winter storms is, you know, a lot of times when it comes to rainstorms, people aren't all that concerned about, you know, how much rain I'm going to get. Tell me exactly how many inches of rain I'm going to get. But when it comes to snow, people want to know to the inch <laughs> how much snow they're getting, right? Because it, it sits up on top, all the rain soaks in the ground, but all the snow sits on the top and it's a different story, right? Um, but I think that we've, we've actually been lucky the last couple of years in the Northeast, we haven't had any nor'easters. And so you get a little bit out of practice in essence, but I think the, these wind accompanying storms you know, become very big deals. Um, the one thing I do want to say, though, you were talking about Billy here, and I think these fringe, 
these fringe storms, the early season storms or these late season storms, especially when you have um, leaves on trees, that's when we become very, very susceptible. That's not necessarily as big of an issue in the middle of the winter when the leaves have all come off the trees. But I think power outages has become, again, another big concern when it comes to winter storms, just like it is with a lot of disasters. And, and I mean, listen, how many times have we talked about it just in the last you know, 45 minutes here that uh, electricity, our electricity grid is something that, that we need to address. Um, and I think address quickly about how we're delivering power to people, how we can do it so that we have a very sturdy electricity grid that is not as susceptible to these events as they once were. I think Florida has done a very good job because um, I don't think they had much choice after the 2004, 2005 hurricane season. They did a lot to improve their infrastructure there when it comes to electricity. They don't have have as many issues as they once did, but I think that this is a lesson that can be learned in numerous states that suffer from winter storms, derechos, tornadoes, wildfires. These are all things that take out electricity, and so I think it's, it's vitally important. It's something we address. And I, you mentioned that you're an alum of Ohio State. I want to give a big shout out to Dr. Steve Quiring there in the department at Ohio State um, because he's developed a, a, a weather-related power outage model that is getting quite a bit of use out there. I, I know he actually went to the White House perhaps a couple of years ago, if I recall, uh, from his social media. So there are people thinking about these issues and certainly someone at your own alma mater. One final thing, it's not in my notes at all. It's just something that came to mind because we're working on this and thinking about it at the University of Georgia in a research project with my colleague John Drake in ecology. Weather, as it sort of related to and compounded with the pandemic, you had the coronavirus, COVID-19, yet you had people needing to evacuate from hurricanes or perhaps from tornadoes and go into shelters. Uh, you had resources stretched, uh, FEMA's dealing with the pandemic and so forth. You had people talking about whether heat and summer was going to make the pandemic go away. Um, just any thoughts on the sort of interesting sort of convergence of weather and a major pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so complex. I mean, really is. Um, and I think when it comes to the weather, you know, I think we did end up seeing, and, and it's hard to, to quantify whether it was, you know, social distancing or masks that helped. Was it people being outside? Was it the warmer weather? You know, we saw a downturn. Um, in May and in June. Um, and then we, we started to see a little bit of uptick again after the 4th of July. You wonder if it was people congregating. You don't, I mean, I'm sure studies will be done on this, this stuff, right? Um, but certainly hurricanes was a big issue. You know, how do you put people in shelters? And there were so many um, concerns about transmission in shelters or first responders potentially contracting COVID from, from emergencies that they had to make calls on. Um, would hospitals be overrun? You know, from just injuries or COVID or the, would the two combined? This was really, really a delicate dance for emergency managers and really felt for them and how um, everything was a lot slower than it wanted to, and anyone, anyone wanted it to be or evacuations had to start earlier than you may typically want them to be. And then I also think about other things, Marsha, about how, you know, um, you know, I think a lot about restaurants and how they've enjoyed, you know, outdoor dining and it can keep some of these restaurants afloat. And then it comes to the winter time and especially of our Northern climates, um, you know, these poor restaurant owners, they can't do outdoor dining um, anymore and they have limited capacity for indoor or indoor has, um, you know, there are local ordinances where you can't do indoor dining. And so, you know, I think you see a lot of um, restaurant owners really struggling in the colder climates, whereas you may not have that issue in a place like Florida or the West Coast. 
Um, and so I think just, just because of our regionality, um, there are business that, businesses that, that could go under because of the interaction of COVID and weather, um, which, is, which is a tragedy. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. One I hadn't thought about, but you're spot on with that. Let's hope the emergence of the vaccine and so forth will help us get through the hunt. I, I am candidly, cautiously optimistic that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but there's a lot that's going to happen. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. On, where where can people find you on social media or the internet uh, so that they uh, can follow you? Super easy. Mike Bettis. <laughs> Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, not a lot of people share that name, so <laughs> it's, an easy, it's an easy one to Google. And of course, I, I see you on the TV every night. Yeah, absolutely. Now, be sure to catch Mike on Weather Underground and also on the Weather Channel and, and in social media. But before we get out of here, it's time for our Geek of the Week. Uh, we like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Rob Gutro. Hey, Rob. I know Rob. He loves tropical cyclones of all shapes and sizes. He channels that passion into writing, and he is the manager of NASA's hurricane page, web pages and social media accounts. I believe they're actually shifting that to NASA atmosphere here in the next days or weeks. He's updating you seven days a week, and he never takes a day off, and I had the pleasure of working with Rob for several years at NASA. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, Check out our social media pages. Rob, thank you so much. <laughs> Thinking about Rob, Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, good times, Marshall. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time. And Happy New Year to everyone. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.